Children's Small Bean Services program, direct to Peace Theater. This is probably not the best time, but I have to say, Scientology changed my life. Thank you. Welcome, welcome everyone to yet another episode of Director Peace Theater, the show in which two of your favorite directors from the website, which shall not be named, go through your favorite movies and talk about why they are or are not artistically crafted. I am one of your hosts, Adam Ganser, and with me is my Abe Epperson. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, I did the exact opposite this time. God damn it. I'm you so monster. Sorry. I knew it. I'm so sorry. Usually I God. come in late, now I came in early. I'll get this right, I swear to God. I'm, <laughs> I'm Abe Epperson. I'm starting to feel like coast. a joke caddy for you. Like, I'm just teeing it up, and then you're coming in there with the wood, just knocking it out of the park every time. That's what I they always it. say about me. It's yeah, true. that you're a, you're, that you're a, a joke. <laughs> That's true. That's on several message boards that I'm a part of. Mm-hmm. Abe's Good always coming boards. in with that wood. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, oh, yeah. It's active. It's an active yeah, board. I know exactly what message boards you're on. <laughs> It's just you and me on this thread talking about how you're always bringing the wood. What a great <laughs> yeah, thread. Wait, <laughs> texts aren't message boards? I thought they were message boards. Did I get? Did I miss something? All right. Yeah, uh, we got some so real problems. Are, so last episode we talked about A Knight's Tale, yeah. uh, and you said that this episode we're talking about Basic Instinct. Uh, for people who have not read the video that they've clicked on, what do you, what do you, what's what, going on here? What, what do you what, want to talk what, about? What, what, what do you? What are you doing? What are you doing? What the hell are you doing? I want to hear your argument this time, uh, Adam. Well, I'm ready to make it. Uh, so, okay. So what I want to do is I want to talk about why Basic Instinct is essentially the first meta-narrative by Paul Verhoeven. And it's essentially like a satirical or meta-narrative film more than it is an actual story. Uh, so those of you who have been listening to the content at Small Beans for quite some time and are caught up on all the frame rate podcasts, know that you guys did a frame rate about Starship Troopers, which is one of Paul Verhoeven's films, mm-hmm. and talked about how that film is, in fact, a satirical take on the book, right? Yeah. You went into some detail about that. So my argument here is that Basic Instinct is essentially the turning point for Paul Verhoeven when he stopped making movies that were explicitly just a story and started making movies that were a commentary or satire of either the genre that they was, he was doing or of the source material. And so I want to talk about how Basic Instinct is that. Um, and just for the uninitiated, can you kind of go into what what is a meta-narrative? Absolutely. So a meta-narrative is basically a story that's about itself. So uh, it's a story that's... a that is aware of itself as a story, if that makes sense. And that's a thing that is becoming increasingly common in our films and videos, you know, in this age, because we are all sort of have a giant reservoir of pop culture knowledge now, and movies and television are aware that we have that reservoir, and so therefore can draw on it in a more self-aware way. But Basic Instinct came out in, I believe it was 1992, uh, before it was assumed that everyone had that gigantic reservoir of knowledge. And so it's sort of an early precursor to what is now commonly the case about movies and television. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. So, now, it's, a, so it's like a uh, liet motif for typical stories, trying to... Yeah. It's When you say self-aware, you mean that like it's kind of going through the motions of 
the events that we have come to learn are things. Yeah, I are was, like events I would, in the story of a typical story of like a film noir, correct, or something like that. It's hitting all the beats that are required of the genre that it's in, but mm-hmm. what it but it's not necessarily doing it uh, explicitly just to tell the story. It's also sort of commenting on the beats themselves and the tropes and like the what does this mean? These kind of what right, the these kind of stories in general. Right, like it, it's doing that, and like again, just to illustrate, there's a bunch of movies that fit into this genre. Like I think you could call Brick, the film noir movie from 2005 that launched Ryan mm-hmm. Johnson's career. I think you could call that a meta narrative if you wanted to. Uh, just movies like that that sort of are aware of the genre tropes, playing against the genre tropes, and are sort of winking, like, isn't it fun when it's a movie? Uh, yeah, a lot of um, I would say a lot of Shane Black stuff. Yes, uh, he's also Kiss, there. Kiss, bang, bang. Yes, um, a lot of noirs, as we'll see. I think it's I because think... because noir is not a genre that, on its own right, is still drawing people to theaters. So the way to do a noir is to kind of play the tropes that we're all familiar with and then comment on them, right? That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. Well, that's generally I know. true. Cool. Yeah. So just a just let's refresh ourselves on the movie Basic Instinct. So. <laughs> Uh, I think most people think of this movie as being like essentially an erotic thriller, which it is. Like, let's not pull our punches. It's an erotic thriller. Uh, but they probably don't remember much about it except for uh, boy, Sharon Stone and Michael Douglas really get it on. And also, probably the interrogation scene where she uncrosses her legs. I think that's a pretty famous shot yeah, in movie it's history. It's the most famous. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, just to kind of catch you up, it's Basic Instinct is like. Definitely a melodrama, which is to say that it's uh, always over the top. It's not pretending to not be over the top. Uh, it's always like, so. It's very much like a big version of those kinds of movies, and that's basically Paul Verhoeven's style, right? Like if you've seen RoboCop, or if you've seen Total Recall, or really, or Showgirls, or any of his movies, I think you can say Paul Verhoeven's not a subtle filmmaker. He's much mm. more of a loud. Uh, blast in your face filmmaker. A basic instinct fits the pattern. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, if you want, like in Starship Troopers, if he wants you to think that someone's a Nazi, he'll dress them like a Nazi. <laughs> right, right. He's yeah. not. He's not trying to trick you, uh, or like trying to make you think really analytically about his films. I, I'd say he's like a lot more like. Here's what I want to say. You're going to feel that very strongly. And I think he's also not embarrassed by sort of like pulpy stuff that would feel dumb. In other works, like for instance, there's an amazing line that Gene Triplehorn says, like to, when she's arguing with Michael Douglas's character about Sharon Stone, she's like, "She's evil. She's brilliant." Like she says yeah. those two words oh, yeah. together, and it's like that's the tone of the movie. Uh, if you don't remember it, that's probably a pretty good <laughs> description of the tone of the movie. And you're supposed to believe both of those things, <laughs> right? And it's very much like it belongs in a '50s advertisement, right? Like it's definitely mm-hmm. of that time, in, in a way. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not saying that because it's over the top or melodramatic that that means it's uh, a meta story, like it's not believable. I'm going to show you how it's like basically self-aware in a way that you can't take the actual story itself on at face value. Like that's that's how far this goes. Okay. Great. So the first thing I, I want to start with the end actually, which normally I don't. So the end of Basic Instinct starts with 
<laughs> or or finishes with, I should say, revealing that Sharon Stone's character, who, by the way, if you don't remember, is essentially a writer, a multimillionaire heiress turned writer who writes murder mystery stories and then is being accused in this movie of having pre-written a crime that she then later committed. So she writes these stories and then she commits the murders in exactly the way that she depicts them in her novels is the theory of the movie. And right? that's the end of the movie. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it's very silly, right? Like uh, That's right. a silly, and also I think we can agree, uh, a meta pre- premise, right? Like it, it's a story within a story right off the top. Right. Right. So writer. (laughs) Right. So (laughs) exactly. So the movie is essentially navigating. Is she really the killer? Is this somebody who's playing against the against type here and sort of like copycatting so that she looks guilty? So like those are the two possibilities of the movie. And after I would say the movie definitively states she is not the murderer. Spoilers. She does not commit the murders, specifically the one that starts the film. Then we get this love scene at the end with her and Michael Douglas, and we pan down the bed and reveal that she has an ice pick under the bed, implying perhaps she is, in fact, a murderer, right? Mm -hmm. Even though we've definitively solved the case, she did not murder these people. Like, it's not possible for her to have murdered the people if you work out all the loose ends. It's not possible, but we're still right. saying that she's the murderer at the end. So why? Mm. <laughs> why does she have that ice pick down there at the end? It doesn't make any sense, right? Right. So it's that's that's a that's the moment where I think Paul Verhoeven is taking off the mask and saying like it never really was meant to hang together. It's more about like aren't these stories absurd and stupid and and fun? Right? Like Yeah, it's also kind of See that the way I watched that and read that, and I, you know, didn't read any of your theory beforehand or anything like that. I love this. Uh, I, I read it as because it does this very strange thing, which is it has a scene where they're in bed, and yes. then it fades out. Right. It does do that, like, and then it fades back in. So it like right. feels like end, end of movie, it, and then it, it, it fades back in, and we're still in the same scene. It's almost like it's giving us reality that there's two different answers. Yes. It like is Beth doing is that. the killer or Catherine is the killer. And you, like, so if you lob off the second part, uh, you know, you think one thing or if you let it play, you think the other thing, but it's kind of this duality where you get, it's both like take which one you want, uh, which I thought was very interesting. Cause it was just kind of like, and I don't know if it doesn't fucking matter how it is. And because you're supposed to, you're, I think if you believe that, like you said, if Catherine is like been proven that she can't really have done these things, that means that there's a whole nother story, like kind of like an Ocean's Eleven like right. retcon that has right. to be done, where it explains that she actually was like employing people and she made it work somehow, uh, or she paid people off to do it. And there's a lot that you you weren't seeing, and so you're arguing that Paul Verhoeven is saying like. It's kind of one or the other, but that's what you get with these types of tales. Yes, I think, and I also think he's saying that, like, that essentially erotic thrillers as a genre are needlessly, like, are fictitious and not possible. Like, I I think he's intentionally making the point that it's not real. It can't be real. Okay, so it's what I said, or isn't it stupid? (laughs) Right, and and I don't think he intends to tell you, isn't it stupid? Like I don't okay. think I don't think he's making fun of the genre as much as I think he's like sort of celebrating the absurdity of the genre, if you will. Okay. Right. So now I want to go to the very beginning of the movie, 
right? So the first thing is the ending tells us this. The second thing is the beginning tells us this. All right, so the beginning of the movie is a bunch of like fractured images that are like out of focus shots of a woman having sex, right? Like that's what it is. But mm-hmm. you don't know for sure because it's too out of focus. And the implication is as we add piece by piece that we're trying to piece together what are we looking at? What are we actually seeing? What, right? In a very like mystery fashion, like what is this about, right? And then it cuts to the first actual image of the movie, which is an overhead mirror of two people having sex in which the first murder happens, right? So I think what we're saying there is that, like, right away, there's an unreliability to all the images we're going to see, right? Like, we're we're not going to see exactly what happened. We're going to see a reflection of what happened that isn't necessarily true. And we repeat this motif with the mirrors throughout the movie, right? Like, it happens all the time. So let me just give you a couple of quick examples of it. The first one is uh, when we meet Roxy, who is herself kind of – she's like the lesbian lover of Sharon Stone's character, Catherine, Mm -hmm. Catherine, uh, who also kind of looks like her, right? And I think the purpose of Roxy is explicitly to be a decoy, Right, like, oh, it could be her. She might be the right. one doing the murders, right. right? So when we first meet her, we meet her at a different house that's one of the two houses Catherine owns, and she's standing in front of a mirror. When we have the confrontation with Nick after he's had sex with Catherine, and then it turns out Roxy was watching from some strange hidden alcove that we don't see, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> we, she, they have the confrontation in a mirror, like we're looking in a bathroom mirror, right, at Roxy, which is just sort of implying that we're not getting the truth about this character or really any of these characters, that we're getting reflections of them. So, and right. I think like one of the great like list, litmus test version of this is like the first time that we see Sharon Stone explicitly stripping down to basically naked, we're in her house, right, where she's dressed in an outfit that she apparently just wants to change. Like, like, there's no reason for her to be in a different outfit than the one she wants to be interrogated in. Oh, yeah, because, yeah. Because she knows they're coming to interrogate her. Like, she's not an idiot. She knows that, right? So it's pretty clear that she's putting, like, a theatrical little play on for Nick, which is sort of one of the through lines of the movie. Is she seducing yes. Nick, or is she, like, playing it? Like, to what extent is this uh, her setting Nick up to be another murder victim, or is there actual affection here which one is it, right? So, yeah. but it's clear that she's playing cat and mouse games to a level like that no person accused of murder could ever do. Uh, it is, yeah. It, I mean, it's she's so heavy with it. It's, it's so much. It's so it's much. So much. It's a lot. It's it's a, and it's like that's kind of kind what makes of you exhausting. Yeah, yeah. It makes you smile because it's so much that you're yeah. like you can't take it seriously which is another point I'm going to make in a minute. So Nick sees that a she has all these headline clippings about how he was how he shot some people and he shouldn't have and he was been on administrative leave leave etc cetera, etc cetera, implying like hey I'm looking into you right and he can see that. Then he turns the corner and there's there she is stripping naked, right? Like yeah. in a way that's like how do you not know that somebody could see you? Well, clearly she does. She right? actually has to avoid her eyes while like approaching. Right. Yes, and like so- they're both very. I also noticed that I was like, first off, dude, you just turn a corner and you go, whoa, naked lady. Right. First thing I would do is like turn around and walk away. You can't keep going in there. That's and he for does sure. not. Yes. He does not. He yeah. keeps looking. Right, and then she like so then she like zips up and then she's like putting on a scarf as she walks toward 
him and he still hasn't left <laughs> like he's still looking at her and then he slowly goes i guess i'll leave and right. she has to like avoid looking right. forward which is the natural state you would totally when impossible like yeah it's everything is impossible so just briefly and this like reinforces the exact point i want to make which is that so he sees her naked through a window in the house he comes around the corner, and we think we're actually looking straight down into the bedroom. But it turns out when she walks out, it was a mirror, a mirror that was set up exactly to see her stripping down, right? Because she comes from a different right, angle. Yeah, I remember that. Which is, again, so like you never actually get an honest depiction of her. She's always being represented, like, or just sort of regularly being represented through mirrors and reflections and obs- like being obscured by various objects, right? So mm-hmm. the point being from a visual motif, we cannot trust what we're seeing, right? What we're seeing is not in fact the whole story, right? Now, just mm-hmm. to go back to the beginning of the movie, so we see the murder happen and the setup for the murder happen through the headboard. Like there's a metal headboard and we're like looking through that, which sort of, again, is another way of fracturing or distorting the image so you don't see everything really clearly. But like, I just want you to think about what is actually happening as the story, like from from the having seen the whole movie. So what's actually happening according to the movie is that Gene Triplehorn, a person that this rock star who's going to get murdered knows, right? Uh, he knows uh-huh. her. Dr. Garner, she's going by. So Dr. Garner, he knows her. They meet up after he has had drinks with Catherine. And he's like, hey, could you put on a blonde wig and look kind of like my current girlfriend while we have sex? (laughs) And she's like, yes, let's do that. And then murders him. (laughs) And it's like, why would that ever happen? That's totally ridiculous. You know, that's that's how they fuck. That's how they do it. <laughs> I know, and I and I understand. Like, we're supposed to believe. Oh well, she's a copycat, and she's like envious, and et cetera, et cetera. That's kind of a big ask. I feel like <laughs> that's that's oh, it's uh, a huge ask. Yeah, everything. I, it's not. Yeah, I mean, really possible. That's her charm in the movie is that she's just fucking out. Out out from left field, right? It's like coming out totally impossible. Sex. Yeah. Well, and yeah. all, but so is everybody. Like Elizabeth yeah, Garner. Kinda, yeah. uh, Elizabeth Garner, the character played by Dream Triplehorn, is completely irrational as a character. I don't mean as a I don't mean as a human being. I mean as a character. There's no logic to what she does, because she's quote unquote so in love with Nick that she puts her professional and personal life in unbelievable harm's way. In order for yeah. it to work, right? <clears throat> As a psychiatrist sleeping with your, you know. That's impossible. You can't do that. It's not even a client. It's a, right. you know, like court ordered, you have to go to therapy cop. Right. It's a, ther- like, that's a, that's a punchline in a James Bond movie, not an actual plot element that's allowed to persist in a real cop movie. Right. Right. Which, again, is all to say that. We're we're creating the understanding for the audience. This is not ex- like this is not on the level. You can't trust what you're seeing here, right? This is not really happening the way it's being depicted. Okay, so which means that what we're doing is we're setting up a movie that's more about sort of laughing and enjoying the tropes, and not about a story you can take on its face value. All right, so um, okay, so one of my biggest points here is. All the side characters in this movie are desperately trying to teach Nick exactly what to do. Like, yeah. <laughs> like they are really... They just outright say it. Yeah, they do. They outright say it, and it's not even in like a, like a well-plotted way. It's like in a, hey, Nick, what do you think about this 
answer to this mystery we're looking at. And like, you can't believe that it would happen that way. And it's not because the movie's mm-hmm. bad. It's not that it's bad. It's that like, there's actually kind of a weird unreality to it. So here's a couple illustrations. So Roxy, the first time we meet her, again, in the mirror, she's putting up her hair, which is to say that she is telegraphing for everyone the fact that, hey, the the answer to this mystery is a wig, right? Ultimately, a wig is the answer to this mystery, and she's telegraphing that. Again, Catherine also telegraphs that one of the first times that we meet her after she, when she goes into the interview, she puts up her hair for reasons that are like, why did you do that, okay? Uh, So the lieutenant, who is Nick's uh, supervisor, is the one who sort of posits the either-or theory, Right about like he's the one who's like, hey, isn't this the woman who writes the story that this exact murder parallels? He's the one who posits that theory, which means he has to have read the novel, right? <laughs> he has to have read that novel, and then later on, he's yep. the one who debunks the theory. He's just sort of like, that's horseshit. What are you a book critic now, Nick? And it's like, well, wait a minute, you're the one that pitched this idea. So like, how mm-hmm. can you also be the one turning it down? Right, and he does a lot of things like that. So, like he <laughs> he keeps pushing Nick in exactly the right way to make him do exactly what he needs to do to solve the mystery. Sometimes it's through positing, "Here's the theory to take from this." Sometimes it's through negative reinforcement, but it's always pushing him in exact like the the solution to the murder. It's completely yeah, ridiculous. It's like if you're trying to get someone to believe in an idea, a good thing is to. Think, make them think that they had the idea all along. So one way of doing that might be to present the idea in an, in one way, and then to have that them have then have them combat any argument against that theory, so that they take the side of the th- original theory. Right, right. You know? He knows how good the idea is, and then he dismisses it just to make his detective work like, harder no, to I'm solve need it. Need you to think of this idea. Dude. Right. That's why I thought most of the time, and I think like most people, there's a crazy amount of this movie where you're just like, all right, so obviously everyone's in on it. Right. It does feel like that, that. doesn't it? It feels like you always think like, okay, Beth, Beth and they're, they're making this plot that Beth was like super into Sharon stone and, and then you're like, Oh, okay. No, maybe it was the reverse. They're doing all this stuff. And you're like, none of it makes clear sense. So I bet what it is, is they're into it together and they're going to kill him because he, like for some poetic version, like because he shot someone or something, right? You know, like exactly, and it affected them. Or you, you're gonna assume something will be revealed, but every now and then you stop and go. But then they would have like preempted that. They would have said like, you shot someone and like you destroyed a family or something. Like right? That. And they it turns would. Turns out they're sisters. <laughs> And it was right at the time that they were born. Like right. you'd usually do something like right. that, and they did none of that. No, so you're they didn't like, do any well, of that. That would just be a bad movie. And then they just. When they z- when you think they're gonna zig, they zag. It's very like it's the same thing happens all the time. With we see many photos of them with different hair colors. Yes, we see that several like, times. Like we see them back in college and stuff like that. Right. And it's like it's unclear to me. And I was following very specifically like what was going on. They do maneuvers well, like, well, now this should be a shot of her being a blonde and her being a brunette. Right. Now this should be a shot of both of them being blonde. Right. Okay, I see now where you're developing. And then they, like, show you, no, they're actually both brunette. And you're like, well, what the fuck are you trying to Very say with these so. pictures? Very much so. Yeah, like, they, they, it does intentionally obfuscate in a way that's, like, it, it almost, it feels, yeah, it feels like the director's making mistakes. 
but he but he's not. He's not making mistakes. And it feels right. like the writer's really sloppy, but he's not. He's not sloppy. Like this is this is intentionally sort of meant to trigger your feeling of like, wait a minute, right? And just in case right. anybody thinks I'm like over reading into this uh and like fixing a broken movie, I just want us all to remember that the last movie that that Paul Verhoeven made was Total Recall. And in Total Recall, which again Sharon Stone was in, so he knows the actress. That's a movie about can is any of this real, right? That's the fundamental mm-hmm. question of that movie: is any of this real? Mm-hmm. You know, because uh, it's a Philip K. Dick adaptation. So he's interested in that theme, right? And he's interested in the theme of perception. Again, we go back to RoboCop. RoboCop's a movie about a cop who loses his humanity, and then sort of like does he does he have it anymore or not? You know, and so this is a natural evolution of that theme, I think. Uh, just you know, to make a yeah. defense for it. <clears throat> Couple other, yeah, I think. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, go for ahead. sure. A uh, couple other just side character things that are baffling. Uh, so, like, a lot of this happens in the first act. That's when a lot of the craziest things happen. So, right up top, it's the detectives who realize that Nick and Catherine have a cat and mouse game, not Nick. Nick's just like trying to do, like, just trying to like get about his day, and they keep bringing up like they keep saying things to him, like, you know, it takes one to know one. With you and her, right? Like she's as crazy as you are, Kearns. Like literally, everybody's making the the connection. Like you guys are like kindred spirits, and like you should like find out about her, but also stay safe, you know. And she's like, right. and he's just yeah. trying to be a detective, like in the world, you know. Uh, it's like they definitely it feels leading uh, for sure. Uh, the the maid that lets Nick into the first house when he knocks on the door, like, hey, we're here to interview uh, Catherine over this murder. Catherine's not home, so why the hell does the maid open the door? You know, that's not a mistake, because she opens the door, and there at the top of the staircase is the decoy. So why the hell did the maid open the door? You know what I mean? Like, that does, <laughs> yeah. that legitimately doesn't make sense. And don't tell me, like, oh, it's because it's a dumb filmmaker or mistakes. This guy knows what he's doing, right? You, wouldn't make, you would yeah. not make that mistake, would you? Would you make that mistake? No, not absolutely I would not not make that mistake either, and I don't think he did either. I think it's on purpose. Uh, Yeah, so many times people get into, until it becomes a joke, like everyone's getting into people's houses that not not once, but like three times, I think, someone says like, how'd you get in here? It happens a lot in this movie. People just walk into these like like, houses. Oh, I let myself in kind of (laughs) stuff. Like, what is is happening? Why is everyone just walking into rooms? Yes, I agree. And, And that's, I think it's, Again, because those thriller novels, and they're you know they're they're not the high art novels. These are like the the ones you see at the grocery store, right? They're right. dumb like that. You know what I mean? Like they're intentionally silly like that. <laughs> and I think it's it's intentionally lowering the quality of the story to match those tropes. You know, and yeah. I, I think that's really cool. So Nick's sidekick, you got, yeah, yeah, right. Nick's sidekick, Gus. Uh, is, <laughs> I think he's one of my favorite movie characters because I don't. I, I, all, sidekick you mean his partner yeah well he's, yeah but in this movie he's a sidekick let's be honest okay so, okay. so just like <laughs> I, I all due respect to the actor I think this is one of the most uneven performances I've ever seen in a movie you know and I'm not I, I believe that he was told to do that because I think this guy knows what he's doing as an actor so like up top he's like gleefully gleefully enjoying this weird uh this this woman's like obvious seduction and death threats like he's he loves it you know like watch his yeah. expression <laughs> and then when it suits him 
he stops he starts really worrying about the fate of his partner when like if you're a cop, you know right away this woman is trouble. Don't get involved with him. And he's like sort of winking at his partner the whole time, like, uh, she seems like she's gonna be a handful, you know what I mean? Yeah. Also, he's the one who offers up the major motif of this movie, which is to say the reason why Catherine's getting involved with Nick in the first place is that she's trying to write a new novel about a new person who's gonna die at the end called Shooter. Yeah. Right? And he's the one who says that. He like looks at her again in a mirror. He adjusts his rearview mirror and he says, "You working on a new book to explain her bizarre behavior?" It doesn't make any sense. Like she asks Nick for a cigarette. She says, "You got a cigarette?" He's like, "I don't smoke." She's like, "Huh, won't last." And then she pulls out her own cigarette. And then Nick's like, "I thought you said you didn't smoke." And she's like, "Oh, did you want one?" And it's like, "What? What are we doing here?" And then Gus adjusts the a window or the mirror and he goes, "You working on a new book, lady?" It's like, "What?" Uh, you can't you can't Everyone believe it. Everyone the, on the force as well is is fucking weird. Yes. Like, Yes. They're so weird about it. So something that uh, I don't know if we've mentioned yet is that Michael Douglas's character, Nick, has, like, in the past, the reason why he's going to therapy and stuff like that and met Beth <clears throat> is because he used to be, like, a druggie. He used to do cocaine. Yes. He, like, lost his, like, he lost his, lost his he edge. ruined his marriage. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he got suspended and stuff like that, like crazy. Like he was uh, alcoholic. He couldn't so still be a like cop. Mid quitting all of those things, right? And she walks into his life, Sharon Stone, and immediately all of his friends see him drinking. They see him like doing weird, like fucking anyone, like just being the womanizer they used to be. And no, people at times will go, "Oh, like you shouldn't do that." And then at other times, it's like, "Ah, fucking Nick." It's it's, it's <laughs> right, and it's like so when he goes back to drinking, this happens in a bar with his colleagues, who by the way are hanging out with him in a bar. That's not the coolest thing in the world. And they kind of jab him for yeah. it, which I guess I can see how that's awkward. He, he takes a drink. Like, and internal affairs is there immediately, like, starting a fight with him, and they still don't stop him from drinking. They still don't, like, hey, man, IA's here. Maybe you want to put the double blackjack down, you know? No, they yeah, just let it go. he does say, I'm not on duty right now, so I can do whatever the fuck I want. So it's just bad decisions. But instead, the guy goes, like, he calls him, like, shooter. He, like, says, like, what do you think of that shooter? shooter. And stuff like that. I know. Like, he is being unprofessional in, like... The AI, the IA agent is being more unprofessional totally. somehow. It, it, it's he's, not how I expected that sequence to go, knowing how movies usually are where the guy is doing something wrong. Someone's going to step in and be like, maybe you shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> uh, here's, an, here's, a, here's a conflict that is immediate now. Uh, Verhoeven's like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. That's a conflict, but I'm going to make a new conflict yeah. where everyone's just fucking nuts. I, like nobody in this movie is going to have any rationality to it. And so like yeah. just, just so everybody understands – like, I've seen RoboCop, as has Abe, so I understand that his depiction of cops is always a little over the top, right? And it, and, oh, yeah. that, and that trend continues all the way through Starship Troopers, et cetera, et cetera. He fucking hates them. Well, he, <laughs> he hates, hates them, and also he thinks they're, like, cartoon monsters, you know? So, like, this is in tone with that, but just to underscore what you just said, so, like, the IA guy calls him Shooter, 
And then there's there's an implied exchange of a case file with Catherine, like somehow she buys a case file, is implied but never proven, and she starts calling him Shooter and then titles the name of her novel Shooter, almost as th- as though like this whole thing. Right, that's how he kind of knew it was the AI, the AI agent. That, that's uh... the connection he makes, but there's never any proof that that case file was actually transferred. Yeah, because he just gets shot. Right, but he gets <laughs> so shot by it all just as doctor. That's another thing. A lot of cops say at times, uh, it's just um, it's just something that like, and then it just didn't pan out. Right, like it's like, oh, you studied the case, you looked into the facts, and did you ever do any research on this woman? Because I'm doing an investigation right now, and she's at the heart of this crime, and it's very similar. He's like, no, we didn't actually ask her any questions. Why not? Uh, just you know, one thing after another, nothing really made sense to really investigate her at all and it's just like really because everything from my standpoint and i'm looking at it from the future like you should have been able to know that then yeah you don't get the feeling that they're totally incompetent but you get the feeling like some magic is going on right that is making these people invincible to some forms of questions because it's just happens constantly and it's not done in like a generation kill way where it's like look at how idiotic they're acting it's not that they're idiots it's just that they are presenting the facts as if like well we all were talking about it and we thought about it and we just didn't do it and it's like are you under a spell of some kind? right how does this not occur to you uh, and like again, I, they're not the kinds of things that are like, oh, we're just a lot smarter than the screenwriter and director. They're the kinds of things that, if you're a filmmaker, these aren't accidents. You know, they they they're not bad screenwriting and they're not bad filmmaking. They're choices. Uh, I, and I like yeah, and I think that's only because if you can design a theory around them, uh, and it's absolutely airtight. That's obviously what's going on. Right. I mean, and that's what I'm hoping I'm doing now, but you will tell me at the end, I'm sure. So Moving on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, just a couple more things Gus does that are just baffling. So one of them is he shows up at night when Nick is like typing on a computer just to tell him about this friend that uh, Catherine's meeting with who was a convicted murderer and it, and then they they make this joke that's like, well, what are you doing here? And he's like, oh, I was gonna spank it with the computer. Like he literally had no reason to be there. He just showed up to give this information. And then I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to the theme of masturbation a little bit later, uh, because uh-huh. it matters. But like, it's it's the kind of thing that like isn't even bothered to be plotted away. It's like not even explained away. It's like mentioned and then sort of acknowledged. This doesn't really hang together. It doesn't totally make sense. Uh, he also is the one that mentions, uh, have you ever met a friend of Catherine's who didn't kill somebody? And the only person who fits that exact description is the, is, uh, Dr. Garner, who ends up being the person who did all these murders. You know what I mean? So like he, like he just sort of shows up at convenient times to push Nick exactly where he needs to go to solve the crime when he would otherwise have hit a dead end. And then he he sort of pretends to not want Nick to go through with this. Like, everybody's like, Nick, no, you shouldn't do this anymore, man. Let it go. But, like, they also keep pushing him with the exact kind of questions that are going to lead him where he needs to go. It's it's totally crazy. 
Uh, yeah, you you sold me on people acting irrational. Yeah. In this okay. Movie. Good. I'm gonna I'm gonna move on to my next thing. So and you're gonna like this because so as a director, <laughs> our job is to make sure that the actors are performing it in a way that is in tone with the story that you're trying to tell. Right. We're the ones who give the actors like you're playing it uh, with this intent, and then also you know you're playing it to this degree. So. Let's just comment on what the acting says about these characters. And the biggest thing is everyone is having the best time of their life in this movie. There is not a single person in this movie who's bummed about these murders. They are all loving this. Like even when it's kind of true. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of you kinda just say, Oh, it's that's just because they're so used to like murders that like even when they like walk in on a homicide like scene. Like, they're just, like, making jokes about, like, oh, this guy's a rock star? Cool. Right. You know, or, like, playing with stereos. and you know. <laughs> Right. And like, they just fucking don't give a there's fuck. That one, there's that one line that I wrote down as, a, as an observation that I was going to make to you later where, like, they're standing in front of a Picasso. <laughs> they're standing in front oh, of yeah, an actual Picasso. Picasso and they're like, rock and roll, huh? <laughs> and it's, like... It's like both like the most sarcastic line in the world and also like nobody would ever say that. Like it's just they're just playing the tropes so hard. Uh and I believe if the point of that scene is like at one point he goes like oh it's a Picasso, huh? He's like didn't expect you to know who Picasso was. <laughs> He's like I do. <laughs> It's like, good, good scene, So talking about the art, (laughs) and if people know who Picasso is. (laughs) So let me talk about Sharon Stone's character, okay, because I think she's the one that that sort of is the tone setter for this movie, uh, because she's literally the did she do it, did she not character. So she has the best time of her life when she's under investigation for murder. Like, this is, she's having the greatest time. She's loving this. The cat and mouse is, like, absolutely enjoyable for her in every way. She has no fear at any point of the investigation. That never bothers her. The only time that we get an actual human being is when she's asked questions about her emotional attachments to other people. Right? Whenever anybody right. talks about, And they like, spell that out. Yes. Is she a sociopath? Yes. Because they... It's almost like as soon as they define it for the audience, they kick into gear. Right. All right. So Sharon Stone has also was watching the movie with us and knows now to convince us as the viewer that she's not a sociopath. So the next scene will be her crying about her dead friend or something. Yes. So, oh, I have to make another point. I'm going to come back to it. So briefly, uh, she, she, whenever she's asked if she loves somebody and like it actually hits a wound, that's when she gets actual emotion and it's usually like moody. She gets moody and wants to quit and not talk about it anymore, um, which is uh, part of who her character is because I think if you had to sum up her character as a whole, it's everyone in my family, like everyone I love dies and I'm afraid of losing anybody so I push people away, but I love the cat and mouse game, right? Like that's the character. And that's a real thing, and that doesn't super bother me, but that wouldn't add to, boy, do I love being investigated for murder. Whereas, like, she, like, there's a moment after she's had sex with Nick where he's like, I'm still going to nail you because you're the murderer. And the biggest smile comes over her face, like, oh, thank God, you still think I'm the murderer. It's, it's uh, right. baffling. Um, okay, so you just said something that was really key, right? Which is that she, uh, the, like she's like playing along with us, right? Like that's a thing that like that you feel like she's she, watching the movie. Yes. Yeah. So like when we watch her take the polygraph, by the way, she's looking into camera, 
at the end of that scene through mm-hmm. a television screen, mm-hmm. which is yet another obfuscation. The only time she ever answers the question about did you do this or did you not, the shot in that interrogation scene is a dead-on dolly shot right into her that is not obfuscated at all. It's the most direct, honest shot you could make of her. It has like no point of view attached to it. It's not from anybody's vantage point. It's from no vantage point at all. So it's literally just us looking at her. She looks right at us and denies the murder, and it feels fake. And the reason it feels fake is because the we've intentionally created such a meta narrative of obfuscation that when you remove the obfuscation, we feel uneasy about it, and it and it doesn't work. And that's a oh, that's a director like a Picasso. <laughs> Uh, you're welcome for the you're welcome from your joke caddy uh, it's, actually, it's actually not not a bad theory though <laughs> I mean they usually are portraits and right usually... no I think you're right no but 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 really like find another shot in the yeah, movie yeah. that is detached from point of view like that it's the only one in the movie and it's in, it's clearly like the director sort of having a great time at our expense, which is to say, I'm going to give you the exact truth and I'm going to shoot it in the most truthful way I can. And because I do that, you won't believe it. You know? And like, like that's, that is, that's when I knew this was like a well thought out directed movie was like, that is genius. Yeah, because they're like showing their hand a little bit and saying like, we want you to think this now. Yeah, I'm going to use the... Most of direct... Right, I'm going to use the tools that should communicate truth and they'll feel like a lie in this movie because of what I've done. That's a director who knows what he's doing. That is in... That is a meta-narrative tactic. Yes, exactly. Uh, So another thing is, Catherine goes way out of her way to continue to incriminate herself. Like... So if you were under murder, like any other movie, if you're under investigation for murder, maybe you have a good time because of the seduction, but you definitely keep denying things or keep like hiding things. Like, so for instance, Chinatown, right? That's like a Mm -hmm. damsel in distress who uh, could be implicated to some degree in this water stealing scheme, right? And what does she do? She keeps trying to misdirect things in order to place the blame away from her, but also to hide the things she doesn't want you to know, right? Catherine. Yeah, it's like it's like OJ walking around casually wearing black gloves. It's like she uses an ice pick all yes, the time. Yes, she intentionally in uses an ice pick when she doesn't have to. She intentionally it's like, hey, murder weapon me. Right. That's weird, right? Funny. She keeps <laughs> telling him like I could beat a lie detector test. Couldn't you too? She keeps she never at any time ever posits a different theory for how the murders could have happened. Mm-hmm. Never. Right? Uh, and she also, like, she intentionally uses the shooter nickname, which she knows, if she's, like, worth, you know, uh, worth anything, knows is going to be a trigger for Nick because she knows she's getting it from the IA guy, and the IA guy is, like, his most loathsome enemy, and then she uses that on purpose to continue to prod him, which is to say this is not a person who is either guilty of murder or attempting to play the part as though they feel like they're guilty of murder or in danger of being convicted, ever. Never at any time, right? Uh, So briefly, as a person who's researching the character of Nick, she already knows everything about the guy before she ever has any real interactions with him. So like if yeah she's she's constantly like using other people's lines in other scenes yes, like yes 
Like she does that all the time. And it's like, well, you weren't there. Were you there? Are you everywhere? (laughs) Is how I would react if I was Nick. I would be like, well, that's weird because I was like, they literally said that just now. (laughs) Yeah. She knows everything. And also if you're a writer trying to research a character for a novel, and you already have his motive, his intentions, and his story before you've ever talked to the guy, what the hell do you need a relationship with him for? You know what I mean? Like, there's no reason for her to get involved with him at all. It's, I mean, it's, she kind of says, it's the fucking. Right, right. That's what she says. And She's like, like, I like, I like fucking him. <laughs> She, does, I mean, she says that. That's she like does. one of her opening things. She She's does. like, I don't, I wasn't in love with that guy, but I like, like. I didn't him. say I loved him. I said he I, gave me pleasure. Yes, you still get the pleasure. Like, what about Manny, the boxer? Yeah. He's like him too. <laughs> right. Well, she did say she liked Manny. Uh, she didn't love Manny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But She liked to fuck him. I think that's true. And like, sure, that could be an explanation, right? She could have just been having sex with Nick because she enjoys it, but she is the one who frames it as though I'm doing this for a book when she already has all yeah. the information. She like literally has it all. So there is no reason for her to need to do this for the book. It's definitely for her own sort of, you know, <laughs> I, I guess malicious uh, purposes. I, I'm not really sure. She definitely enjoys m- messing with the guy. So you never done that. You never, you never put on an elaborate, you know, like <laughs> an elaborate seduction. When you're like trying to date someone. And you're like, no, nah, let's just hang out. Why? Because I'm writing a book about you. I'm gonna write about you, girl. No, I, yeah. I, I haven't. I haven't generally in my seduction, my honey traps. Uh, deploy like wasted the resources of numerous government agencies. I haven't done that, but oh, maybe that's that's the real sweetness, and I have to figure it out. <laughs> well, that's how I did it. Yeah, yeah. You had a thing going with the Department of Water for years. I remember mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> writing a book about yeah, it. Yeah, I bet you are. Got a great screenplay on the way. All right. So, mm-hmm. uh, uh, briefly, uh, not not that briefly, honestly. So again, on the acting. <laughs> On the acting, nobody except for Catherine can hide their feelings. Every other person in this movie reacts immediately with the way they feel about things, especially Nick. Like, Nick is the most fragile person you can ever imagine, right? He doesn't have any cleverness or obfuscation at all. He's pure reaction. But Catherine is uh, a complicated, layered person who is able to navigate feelings uh, and know when her feelings don't help her, which is to say she's the only person who is an actual character and she's the one writing the story, right? So she's the actual yeah. human. The rest of us are not. This is, and that's a <clears throat> meta narrative clue, I would argue. Okay. Sure. Okay. okay. So I've talked about the mirrors and fragments thing. I talked about the looking right into camera thing. Uh, We've talked about the yeah. lie detector thing. So, okay, the big... There was another thing that you also said I wanted to bring up is that I thought it was really interesting uh, how you said how people... Because you just said that she's, like, the only real person. Right. It's so funny looking back. There's, like, one scene where he goes to UC Berkeley... Yes. ...to investigate Le- uh, Lisa Oberman. Right. Who it turns out she said Oberman. Which is insane. That's an that insane thing. Turns out to be Elizabeth Gardner, yeah. the, his psychiatrist. Yeah. And when he's searching... Which is a crazy scene because it's like, okay, so we're just showing like menial police work. But then there is this one hint and it's like it makes sense of why that scene exists is that it doesn't show up on the computer when he keeps searching for it. And the like the clerk says, 
or he says to Is the clerk, like, you're sure yeah. that this can't be a mistake? And the desk clerk says, if there's a mistake, you're, you're making, making it. it. Which is not something someone would say if they're doing like a search on Google for Not you. to a cop. Like, not to a cop. It's not like you just be like, no, I'm sorry. I can't find that name. Right. You know, but it's like the way she phrases it is you're making a mistake. Right, exactly. And like, it, and then the, literally the next plot point is him understanding, oh, I've made a mistake. <laughs> See, I didn't make that connection, and, and like, I, I love it because, like, again, if you put, if you pinpointed every single side character and watched the way they interact with Nick, you're gonna see none of them are doing things or saying things that they would say. Like, so no, they're all acting like uh, they're acting, which is why I understand where you're getting with the meta narrative. Now, they're archetypes of the characters. Spoke as if they're a vessel. They're both acting as the vessel and the archetype, but they're speaking as if they were written by someone who's self-aware of the narrative. In other words, they're being written by Sharon Stone or by by being written by Paul Verhoeven slash us right. to say like. And then they're basically there for a red herring. So it's like it's okay. So this character said, who is the red herring, says literally like the definition of red herring and why they are it. That's it. Yeah, you know I, I do. Mean? That's it. That, uh, exactly. Right. Or like I was going to make this joke about that cop who basically seems like he's getting paid to wash cop cars. <laughs> like he's just out there. <laughs> he's out there hosing down the cop car, which is like, why would anybody be doing that? Uh, and he's mm-hmm. basically just there to tell Nick about that. The death of Elizabeth Garner's husband. Like he's not he's not doing any cop work. You know? Uh, no. Yeah. It's he's, yeah, he's doing, right. That's I that's mean, impossible. Yeah. Um, just because I want to make sure we cover all the camera related things that we can, because those are the things that I feel like you and I are uniquely qualified to talk about. So yeah, yeah, hit me. Uh, we talked a little bit about the mirrors and the fragments. I just want to l- label a couple other times that obfuscation is used to tell us that what we're seeing is not a thing we can re- rely on. So like one of the motifs okay. in the movie is that Catherine's, uh, Catherine's house has a pool in it. Right. And like not in Mm. it, but like right outside of it. That pool is one of the most reflective pools you've ever seen in your life, because any time they use it, they use it a lot and it wouldn't be that reflective in general. So it's clearly intentional that we're using the the uh, the obfuscation technique because it makes it it makes you feel like there's something between us and the actor. Right. And that's also when we get a lot of particularly explosive or interesting pieces of information. They'll often happen with that water or with like rainwater or the reflection of the pool over the actor's face so that you feel like you can't trust it. Uh, that right. so that's one that's just another time. They use the bars of the the bars of the uh, headboard. They use it twice. They use it at the beginning of the movie when the fir- when the murder actually happens, and then they use it again mm-hmm. anytime Sharon Stone is actually initiating sexual contact in the movie, like during the big sex scene, mm-hmm. for instance. They use the bars to indicate that, she, like, to imply she's going to murder him, right? To set up that sexual act. Yeah, she's caging. Correct, her exactly. And also, we're obscuring her motives. Right, so like that's why. So it's just a thing that's like sort of regularly done in the movie, and j- just like a funny comment, just so you understand that Verhoeven knows exactly what he's doing. So like, there's a moment when after they've slept together, he comes down and like she's having like, 
she's having some weird breakfast or whatever out on the beach, some meditation out of this beach she lives on. And then he walks down, they have this dialogue, and then they kiss each other, and they kiss in front of a fire pit, and Verhoeven intentionally frames them so that the fire is right between them. You know, like, which yeah. is like, man, they're burning hot for each other. So, like... Yeah, yeah, right on the <laughs> Exactly. Like, if you want to know the sensibility of the filmmaker you're dealing with and whether these things are intentional, that's the scene that should tell you that. You know, like, yeah. fire right between them, okay? So, mm-hmm. now I want to talk about uh, just... And I'll do this briefly because I know we've gone over a little bit. I want to briefly talk about sort of, like, what is the movie actually saying about sex, and the reason I want to talk about that is because I feel like that's the thing that we all remember the most from this movie. And so I want to kind of say, what are we saying here? So the movie is constantly using sex to either obfuscate or to imply that this whole thing is being written. Uh, the first way is that during the famous interrogation scene, uh, we're using sexuality as a distraction from the actual crime. And the way that you can tell, like, so, like, what I mean by that is, essentially, they bring her in to question her, right? She refuses an attorney, which means she has, quote-unquote, nothing to hide. And then very early in this scene, she begins to sort of frankly display her sexuality. And And I mean, not even just with the uncrossing of the legs. I mean, she's taking off her shirt. I mean that she's acting in a way that's, like, clearly intended to entice. And the men in the room are fundamentally baffled by this. They are uh, bamboozled. Wayne Knight <laughs> yeah. is the best cast ever. He best kills cast. in this movie. He's so yes, sweaty. His it's sweat. like he's looking at... Right. He's as wet as if he's looking at a velociraptor. <laughs> he really is. And just briefly, he sees the moment when she uncrosses her legs. It's not It's not implied. Yeah. It's like stated. His brow yes. furrows. Yeah. He sees it. Then Nick is like, yo, man, that's not for you. <laughs> like with a look. <laughs> yeah, and then, yeah. And then he's like, oh, my bad. As though this woman has like <laughs> sorcerer's powers with seduction. Right? Like she is. She does. She is a magician. With her, uh, with her seductive powers, which is to... It always lands the way that she yes. wants. And, and like she is able to control a conversation with six seasoned cops just with her seductive prowess, right? That is what, this state, what the scene is saying, which is to say that sex is not a reliable... Like, makes her... Makes this scene unreliable, right? And if you think that I'm overdoing it, the moment where she actually begins to overtly flirt with Nick is the moment where score comes in, which means where the director's deciding this is the moment I want to underline emotionally for the scene, this seduction right here. And it takes her like five or six questions thrown directly at Nick, who is the cop investigator here, for anybody else in the room to be like, do you guys know each other? Which is like, that's the first thing they would have said. They would have said that yeah, right it was away. Yeah, immediately subtext of everyone just had to find a, like an in. Yes, it's completely. To, before they asked, that's all that was. <laughs> right. Because I, it, they were too busy with the sex eyes <laughs> that they're just like, just waiting. Like this woman's it. powers of sex are so strong that the instant she flirts with anybody, they got to get up and get some water. They're running dry the minute. So you said something, you were like seduction as writing? Yes. Because I understand the distraction yes. aspect. Yes. So... They talk about sex as they, – they talk a lot about uh, about sex in a sort of writery way. So like anytime they're actually flirting with each other, they're doing screenwriting. Uh, 
So, for instance, when her and and Nick actually get into the actual flirtation, they rewrite and repurpose each other's lines. It doesn't happen before that in the movie. It's the first time it happens, right? They make plays on words. Mm -hmm. They recontextualize everybody else's lines. They, uh, They swap backstories that neither of them could possibly know. Right, as like meaning like so she knows Nick's wife's like nickname for her. For him, you yeah. know what I mean? Like just stuff like that that's very much impossible. Yeah, it's impossible yeah. and also it's like the kind of thing a writer would do. It's like, uh, I know your backstory and I'm gonna use this cute nickname because it has emotional value to you. Uh she actually hands right. him a book during this seduction act, like their first foreplay act, right? Uh and then he, the best line of the movie, I would argue, is he says to her, I'm in love with you already, but I'll nail you anyway. You can put that in your book. Meaning he's aware of like the nature of their flirtation is writing, and you should write it down. Right? And then, so <clears throat> like to contrast that, anytime we're talking about plot or motivations of characters, they bring up the, the idea of masturbation. Right, it comes up several times. Nick, when he's in- interrogated by the psychiatrist, he the first thing he does is make a masturbation joke. Gus, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. talks about his right. hand. Yeah. Gus explains that he's jerking off to the computer when he goes to give this important fact about the kind of people Catherine associates with, right? Which is a plot thing. So that is to say that foreplay is writing, and that ma- like that plot and emotions, which are usually the substance of a movie, that's masturbation. Right, which means that sex is sex huh. in this movie, you know, and that's really interesting. So, from a story standpoint, plots and emotions are interchangeable and frivolous, yes, in the same way that masturbation yes. is. So, as a meta narrative, which is only to talk strictly about structure and about purpose of like character right. or purpose of writing, right. uh, that is the true. F- that is the only things that actually matter, and that's sex. Masturbation is just how you kind of like that's it just, just gets a you there. experiment yes. in frivolity because you're just that you can skin in you can skin in a movie any right. way you want. It, it's yeah, it, it, in every other movie, and like this is just a clue for everybody who is interested in filmmaking. Plotting and motivations for characters, that is the engine of a movie. That's the thing that makes people interested in it, right. the emotional content. In this movie, that's masturbation. Which is to say mm-hmm. the the sex scene or the action scenes, those are the scenes that are the quote-unquote juice of the movie. And that's the opposite mm-hmm. of what, how movies actually work. So this is a person who's making the statement that like this movie is not narratively trustworthy. It's just a joyride. It's literally just a joyride. Oh. Yeah. So just to wrap up this theory, so if it's a meta-narrative, what is the meta-narrative saying? Right? And I have two theories. Uh, my first theory, and I think it's the one that I've done the best job proving, is that this is about sort of how absurd and pulpy the erotic thriller genre is. Like, as a genre, the erotic thriller doesn't really happen in human experience. So it's really more about titillation and over-the-top sort of, like, tension. And this movie is like, what if we went way over, like, way over the top for the purposes of showing how absurd that is? Yeah. Right, so it's a commentary on yeah, that level. Yeah, yeah. The second one, and I don't know how you're going to feel about this, but is that this is actually a story of what it's like to date as a middle-aged person. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, <laughs> I knew you're going to like it. Of course. So, so of the course, that's a Tinder. Yeah, this is this is forty-year-old Tinder. Here it comes. So, like, <laughs> so 
like each person in this movie, most of the movie is they both have a lot of baggage, right? Neither of them have the ability sure. to get intimate. They and like by the way, just so everybody knows, there's a horrifying uh, sexual assault scene in this movie, and like it, it, oh, yeah, it I yeah, think yeah, some there's... people need to know that in case they want to watch it. The, yeah, tr- it's yeah, triggering, warning. and it's it's a uh, it's with Gene Triplehorn's character, uh, and it's yeah. pretty early, and it's almost just as dark because she's like. She she calls him out on it, and she's just like, "What you did isn't making love." Yeah, and he's you've like, never oh, been like that before. And she like, says. because he's trying, because he was so hot for Sharon Stone, right. That he like projects it onto her, and she's like, doesn't want it that yeah. way. And it's very, very uh, yes, it's not it's not a good look. Uh, it has it was bad at the time, and it's worse now. Um, and I think that's on purpose. Mm-hmm. But that is to say, both of these people are extremely damaged. Right, like they both have like history. They both have exes that are like that have like sort of a sad past. And this whole thing is the only way they know how to meet someone again. They have to play out their pathology in order to meet someone again, and they have like things have to align just right for them to be able to get into a relationship, which is ultimately mm. what happens in this movie. This movie is ultimately the story of two people meeting and finally falling in love with all of their brokenness. Like, that's really it. Mm. And so, and like the last line of the movie is a discussion about whether or not they're going to have kids. You know what I mean? Like, that's it. It's like, okay, what do we do now? I don't know. Have sex like Minxes, uh, get some rugrats, See, that was live my, happily ever after. So, so you're da- to your dating theory. Yeah. Uh, because that's, the last line is like, so what are we going to do next? And it's, and he, and he, it's like, fuck like Minx. Have some regrets. Right. Live happily. Live happily right. ever after. And then she's like, she she and she contemplates she killing the, him at that point. Right. And then so only after it is he says, forget the rug. He says or forget the rug. And then no, I'm not gonna kill you because he's making a joke. Yeah. And then she's like, yeah, and puts down the knife. And she's like, and then they fuck again. Right. So and that's like as we fade right. out. So I think Paul Verhoeven is actually. It's not dating in your thirties. It's. Uh, no kids. <laughs> I mean, right? No, no, yeah, kids ruin kids. relationships. The kids, kids bad, are murder. Kids. No, but but yeah. like just just like two more points on the dating thing. They have a scene when they finally get together that takes place in a club. That club is impossible, and they do not belong there. They're both. Oh, they that, are that club is too old. Whoo. Yeah, the club's horrible, and they are way too old. And it feels like they're trying very hard to be sexy, and it's the least sexiest thing. In the movie by far. And I feel like that's... <laughs> it is the best. Yeah. It's my favorite scene. It's so good because it's... I, what I love is that it's Michael Douglas, right? In all of his... In his mid-late 40s, maybe. Wearing, like, ni- clearly 90s right. clothes. Like, they got the fucking sweater right. that's weird. Not the sweater, like... Uh, not the sweater next, but, like, just, like, you, you recognize... Ross Ward on Friends. Oh, one. easily. And, yeah. And he's just st- standing there like a fucking awkward statue. And Sharon Stone's just like orbiting him and like putting her butt right right on the right. business. and and he's just like yeah right he's yeah, just like right. nodding along like, like here I am not going yeah. to dance I refuse to dance and everyone is like dancing like it's Zion from the fucking no Matrix kidding. movies like everyone's going ham and he's just like no he's like I don't no. I can't dance so I'm too Douglas. busy do- being a detective in this club and I don't know what Verhoeven was doing but I love it because it's just. Who decided it was a good idea? He did, and thank you. Well, it's you. so funny because like there's a hundred thousand other ways to render a club, and that one doesn't belong in this movie even. 
Like it's it's too colorful no, it's, and it's too vibrant yeah, and it's too absurd. It's obviously not like Blade <laughs> or something like that where it's like you know it like, should be Blade. It's like a hardcore, but it's it's very dancey. Oh and yeah, like not not the professional like. Everyone else in this movie looks like Mulder and Scully. Yes. Imagine Mulder and Scully going to a right. rave. Right. It, it's it, well, and again, like I can't say this enough. If you've ever been to a club, Abe, which I have been, but not for quite some time, when somebody crosses the forty-ish threshold and they aren't with other people, those people are like aliens. They do not belong in that environment. You know what I mean? Like oh, that yeah. is how you yeah. get. That is how you treat those people. That's how it seems. And I'm not saying that because it's right. I'm just saying this is how it is, right? So like, it <laughs> felt very much like, what are they doing there? They don't belong <laughs> there at all, and it's not a sexy so, place for them to meet. What are we doing? You know? And it felt like they're trying so, too hard. Okay. It feels like they're trying too hard. All right. You know? Yeah. Yeah, so you're saying that's middle-aged dating. Yeah, yes. They shouldn't be there. When you're trying to date and you're older and you like do right. the dating tropes, it's like you got to create And it feels so yeah. uncomfortable cuz like it's just like, oh, when I was younger this is what I used to do. Now it's uh now I feel like I don't know how to do it anymore. And <laughs> why am I here? You know, like yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and everyone's just like when do we can we do we like each other? Can we we all know how this goes. Right. You know? And also like Sharon Stone has been not even a little bit pretentious about wanting to bed him down. So in the club scene, suddenly she's like turning him away and like teasing him with Roxy and like trying to make him jealous. And their seduction is like literally a mating dance. You know, and it's very like, what are we do like the whole scene didn't need to happen at all. Oh, they yeah. could have skipped the whole thing. No, you know? It's my favorite scene. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so uh, other than a couple of jokes I wanted to make, I feel like uh, that's really my theory. Just last comment I wanted to make about the movie before I move on is uh, there's a moment in the after the first murder where they put on these glasses that allow them to see cum stains, and those glasses huh? are yeah. a true police miracle. It's <laughs> like what they have like cum stained no, glasses. No, those are just... What? Those are just Michael Douglas's. He just brought them. To They're set. like these red blue blockers or something that are like, yeah, and like there's a detective whose job is to wear them and be like, guys, there's cum stains. And then he just yeah, hands he just, it over and they're like, oh my God. It's just like, all right, he, the cum guy's here. <laughs> he's brought his glasses. He comes uh, in, he's like, looks at the bed. He's like, yeah, that's a lot of cum. Because that's yeah. the other thing is if you, uh, you get a shot through the glasses and it's just a lot of cum. It's, uh, right. It's, 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 it's a fountain. Like it's like. But I assume, because doesn't all, I don't know how those glasses work, I, because under the black light, doesn't like blood also do right, it? Right, that's like, why just, it couldn't be a real thing. It's just like, <laughs> yeah, it's, I, th- I thought it was just like organic No, material, it's like he programmed RoboCop's vision just to isolate cum and then put him in these glasses. Hell you know yeah, what I mean? Dude. It's totally ridiculous. Doesn't make any sense at all. Like, uh, boy, boy, yeah. oh boy. It's the sequel to RoboCop, cum pop. <laughs> <laughs> it's <laughs> what a movie what a yeah. movie uh yeah so going back to your theory yeah. i love this theory this is great because i never knew how to like it'd been a while since i'd yeah, seen yeah. it i always thought of it as kind of a satire but i never actually went to the meta narrative aspect of it where there's so much that 
it's so clear that all the um, distinctions that Paul Verhoeven is doing, especially with like having characters say explicitly who they are and what their purpose is in the narrative, uh, having things not make sense on purpose, and the fact that you when you line them up, it's just so much shit that doesn't right. make sense. Making um, <clears throat> specifically making maneuvers by the directorial, like with camera. Um, like showing things like like the inserts of like who's got like who's wearing a wig and when like not really working and almost feeling like a mistake all the way down to the like just the imagery of the the mirrors and stuff and like the fracturedness of the tail and the fact that she's a writer it all kind of coalesces for me and I definitely think that the theory is up to snuff. Um, where I question, lost where you lost me is. <laughs> My question yeah. is, uh, why is it called Basic Instinct? Great question. I really thought about that. Uh, I'm guessing that it's a play on sort of like Nick Nick's instinct about her is that like she's responsible. And it's that and also sort of the idea of like sex. You know what I mean? Like underline sex. Yeah, usually we talk about Basic Instinct as like our more animalistic desires, right. I guess. Which I don't think this movie has a lot to say other than we are... I guess we are victim to our animal side is maybe something he's trying to say. I like guess. We can't help ourselves but want, want to fuck. It's tr- I guess um, so. But that's not really what it's not really. saying. No. It's, kind of, it's not really. It's saying so much. Like, it's saying something different, I think. And so I thought that was weird. I did think of a really good name for I'm this excited. movie, though. I'm so, excited. A good name for this movie would be The Game. <laughs> Right, I know exactly. Right, that's that's exactly what right? it should be. Because, right, right, because it's all right. a game. I mean, exactly. Like that. I I do think that. Can you imagine if Fincher had made this movie, how it would feel? Mm-hmm. Like I I don't know mm-hmm. if it'd be any better, honestly. But it would be. It would not be as uh, over the top. It would be a lot drier. Yeah. And I think the. And I really think that Michael Douglas was the perfect choice. For the movie that I'm now going to call the As, game. <laughs> and that will never confuse anyone ever again. Uh, well, it's, yeah, because he was sort of the main guy in this genre at this point, right? After. Yeah, that's true. He was because he, he kind of has like he's like the older, like fuckable guy. Well, I think I think Fatal Attraction is sort of the the main text for this genre. Like that's the mm-hmm. he was doing like romancing the stone. A few yeah, years and, yeah, and I think because he was in Fatal Attraction, he's sort of like the premier talent in this genre mm-hmm. for a little while. Although I don't know if he ever did another movie after this uh, in this genre. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, he did the game. One of my favorite parts about Verhoeven's is that he does kind of in the same way that we're describing the uh, club scene. He does inexplicably like random things. Yeah, that like whereas before your argument was these are random. Like, they're random and wrong. So then, like, because they're, like, for for example, everyone on the force is irrational. But they're irrational in a way, like, so they're wrong. But they're irrational in, like, a crazy way. Right. <laughs> right? He will do stuff that it's, like, there's no reason for it to be crazy. And he still wants to do it. Like, one of my favorite moments is, like, like multiple times it gets multiple inserts in this movie because it's a, p- a pair of keys on the key. The key, uh, key ring is Bart Simpson. I know why, why is Bart Simpson? And on this? these are, these are f- almost 40 year old. Yeah. These are 30 Doesn't something make sense. people. I know. Why would they have Bart Simpson keychain? And it's like, it plays a part in the plot, by the way, like it matters as an image it plays t- multiple yeah. times, multiple times. Yeah. 
I think it's probably because Nick and Bart are both bad. Boys. Well, I mean, people like to sort of imply like that Verhoeven's sort of like that crazy European guy. Uh, like that's kind of his sensibility. Yeah. Okay. But yeah. like, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of European filmmakers. And that's this is he's unique among them, uh, and he does have a sort of sure. consistent like exuberance to his style that uh, I think in the '90s we started to get a little bit more eyebrow raisy about. It was a little bit like, I, like for instance, Showgirls is also in this sort of over-the-top exuberant right. tone, but that movie is largely considered one of the worst movies ever made and then got a cult following because there's a certain percentage of people that love his weird More thing. Like they love his weird thing, you know? Yeah, and other directors have done this kind of meta-narrative sure. to like an equal sure. effect, but he's, like I immediately thought of when I was re-watching this, I was like, this reminds me a lot of Cronenberg's history of oh, interesting. because everyone is acting like a like what they're supposed to act right. like. I'm an '80s bully, you know, is more more or less what that kid should be saying when he beats up uh, Vigo's like kid. <laughs> it, there's just weird, like it's it's so it's like surrealist film. Yeah, when you actually look at it, even though it do, it isn't as surreal as something like a David Lynch, where it's like you get surrealist imagery mixed with like random things that you can't decipher until you have seen it and have to like watch it again, or if it's just done as a tone poem. He's definitely making narratives, yes. and they're familiar yes. narratives, but he's, much like Starship Troopers and stuff like that, because I know that he's done this, uh, what appealed to me about your theory is not just that this was, uh, that it's a Paul Verhoeven, therefore it should be a meta narrative. He's done it so many times that I'm like, well, yeah. Um, but it's true that it is truly when he hit his, f it was like yes. his first. It he was turned like the his, corner here. He hit his full stride and he said, this is all of right. the movie. Like even Robocop has elements of it, but he's not like, okay. And True Recall the same. Like he's not exactly going, I'm going to make my whole movie out of just the 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 texture and fabric of what a Mariner narrative is. That's all the movie right. is. And then by the time he gets to Star Starship Troopers in, I think, 97, he's just full on saying, like, this is the type of Like, this is his Doctor Strangelove, uh, which if you're a Kubrick, if you're a sure, Kubrick yeah. fan, Doctor Strangelove's kind of the moment that Kubrick starts making real Kubrick movies. Like, he'd made a bunch of movies, but, like, Strangelove's the first time that sort of, like, that weird detached stuff, sort of maniacal feeling that you get to all his, the rest of his movies, yeah. it starts there. Because yeah. uh, if you watch Paths of Glory that's just a good movie. Like that, he's very yeah. competent and he's like, it's very smart, but it's still making like the narrative films. It's Or it's like another good example is like Miller's Crossing yes. and the yes. Coen brothers. You know, it's just like, we just want to make a straight gangster right. movie. But then you go to like Raising Arizona and you go, holy shit, these guys are, and Crazy. and Verhoeven's not be. just a tone. Like he's not just Wes Anderson, but this version. You know what I mean? Like, and I don't mean that Wes Anderson's just a tone yeah. either. But Wes Anderson has a really distinct t style and tone that carries through all of his movies. And that's not what I think Paul Verhoeven is. I do think he has a distinct mm -hmm. style and tone and set of interests, just like Tarantino does. But I think he's also a little more than those things. And this is the moment where I started to believe that about his movies. Yeah, I think it holds water, yeah, man. Interesting. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I really. My favorite parts of the movie are what really, like, made me lean forward. Were when people would say something that is almost haunting when the when it's said out loud. It feel and they play it straight. Like yeah. the example I gave about the clerk saying, "If there's a mistake, you're making it." 
like it seems like you're not talking about the thing we're talking about. You're talking about like yeah. a thing, like a thing that yes. the movie's about, like something that he did in a different scene that made me start to like, even though I'd already seen the film and I wish I had seen it only for the first time. Cause then I like with how I am now with how I watch movies, cause it always changes for everybody throughout the years. I kind of was like, oh, I wish I this was the first time I saw it because I might actually think like, oh, this movie is actually like every this is actually like the game. Right. This is like a movie where everyone's right. in on it and they're all turning against because of some off screen like horrible thing that someone right. did. Uh, because it's all seems to be surrounding him in a surrealist way, kind of like Truman Show does. But Truman Show is like playful and fun. This is like Imagine Reverse. Truman Show where everyone's watching you and constantly suspicious and you don't know how but you keep getting away with it but all you do is get deeper and deeper into the suspicion and everyone's like starts to loathe your presence that would be a certain type of hell for some people I definitely wouldn't like it and it definitely is visceral in its recreation of that kind of feeling yeah he's a really fascinating filmmaker because I don't think that we think of him as like one of I don't know if I think he's still alive but maybe he's not uh, we don't think of him as like one of the greats as filmmakers, I would say, but he's he's a known quantity, but he's not like in the you know uh, I don't know Spielberg or you know Scorsese or somebody like that. <clears throat> yeah, it's crazy for having made Total Recall and Starship Troopers for how cult following right. he is that he's never really like it's almost like we want him to f- forever stay in the cult. Yeah, even both of those movies are fairly well. So is Basic known Instinct by most and people. so is RoboCop. Those are that's four big yeah, movies. That's a lot of movies, you know. Uh, I think it's his ability to be a chameleon and jump between those so much that he uh, he never stayed. He never stayed. He always stayed relevant, but never stayed too relevant. You know and I, I mean? think also that, uh, like to use a, an analogy, it's going to bum out a certain percentage of people. Like Paul Verhoeven is sort of on the U two journey in the nineties, which is to say he's doing a sort of like thick irony shtick. That starts here, yeah. You know, because uh, that's what U two was doing in the nineties, right? They pivoted away from their sort of earnest anthem rock, and I think that that means a certain percentage of people see how see the value of what they're doing, and then a certain other percentage of people be like, "That's not interesting anymore." You know, we want like a more authentic version of that, and so they don't think of him as being making great movies. But this mm-hmm. is a good movie when you observe it through the lens of what it's trying to say. You know, uh, it's not just pulpy mm-hmm. bullshit. It's and then like also just for anybody who's interested in making films, the way that he shoots the interrogation scene is like one of the most interesting shoot like shot plans I've ever seen, because most interrogation scenes are pretty locked or they're like gritty. His is not gritty. It's this like furious dolly, uh, like technical uh, thing that makes it feel like it's more than an interview like it's an interview but it's more than this because the camera moves are so over the top and people are so tropey you know what i mean did you notice that when you're watching it yeah oh absolutely that's like it's the point of the scene absolutely i it focus it dwells on people too long to in order to show you that and then that's why you have to notice it is it's like why aren't you cutting away i thought this was just a moment of like and then there's a shot of that person, and they're reacting, and then we st- we stay on them, <laughs> and they do right. something else. It's like, it's very bizarre. It's a hodgepodge. Wayne Knight like leans from out of focus into the giantest close up of him in his film career, and says like, "Did you murder this person?" And then we cut to that weird frontal shot I was talking about. That's like a long dolly yeah. into her, and it's like, 
I've never seen an interrogation shot like this ever. Like you can't even imagine it in any other movie. Uh, anyway, really cool director, and uh, thank you for listening to my theory. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think your theory has uh, a lot of merit. Uh, no matter how you try, I, I'm never gonna agree that you two is a good <laughs> band. I knew uh, I was teeing you up for that. Even if you use Basic Instinct no, as you, a you're if mistaken Basic about Instinct that. good, then you too yeah. good. I, all uh, I'm gonna say is, have no. you ever seen the Zoo TV no. tour? Have you ever seen it? I don't know what that so, is. So <laughs> everyone should check this out. In the early 90s, U2 did this this album called Octune Baby. It's fantastic. It has Mysterious Ways and One on it, if you're familiar with those songs. And they did this tour that was about sort of like media distortion. And it was called the Zoo TV Tour. And it's super 90s, but it also is like weirdly a kind of above the 90s, like looking at what the 90s were going to be right at the outset and it's like one of the most expensive tours ever made and you have to see the set it's like fantastic but very 90s uh anyway go you two you two for life you are shameless <laughs> you are a shameless petty man i earned it i earned the right uh, for this <laughs> no, no, that was a great argument thank you that was a great argument thank you got you. me <clears throat> uh not the YouTube <laughs> Yeah, so next time it'll yeah. be me, and I don't know what Who I'm knows? talking about yet because we Who knows? we recorded. It's gonna be in a it, because of how That's recording right. works. I hope I it's about yet. the movie Hook. I just really want us to cover Hook at some point. You you love determining. Uh, by the way, for everyone uh, off off of Mike, he always just guesses what movies <laughs> yeah. I'm going to do. And you're like, oh, yeah, this is gonna be the greatest. How about Hook this time? It's like you're making me your mm, narrative. It's like I'm uh, trying to write uh, your episodes for you. Oh, yeah, no. and then Abe turned up dead next week. Oh, no, I'm Michael <laughs> Douglas. All right. Yeah. Well, what a fun. It day. really was. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> You too, man. Adios.